Hey, I'm Kim Short, and it's time to get your podcast on. Welcome to What Led Her Here, exploring the defining experiences of women's lives. My guest today is the truly awesome Dion Thompson. Dion is a fellow podcaster, life coach, speaker, mama, artist, and self-proclaimed recovering people pleaser. She's passionate about bringing women together and challenging them to kick their inner critic to the curb so they can live their best lives. I'm so happy to have her here today to share her real and raw story with all of you. Welcome, Dion. Thank you so much, Kim. I am so excited to be here. So you are a born and bred perfectionist and people pleaser, Mm -hmm. something I can totally (laughs) relate to. And I would bet many of our listeners can as well. So please tell us how you came to realize this about yourself and how you started your own sort of recovery. That is an excellent question. I think I became truly aware of my of the label of perfectionism uh, fairly late in life. Uh, Although looking back, I truly believe I suffered from anxiety from a early age, which then manifested in a real need for control of my environment, which perfectionism falls into. I remember getting a clear picture and being like, oh, I think that's me when I was doing a uh, workplace wellness uh, program. And there was a definition of perfectionism and as procrastination being one of the telltale markers. And I used to feel like I was a procrastinator, like I wasn't somebody that got things done. Yet, if I looked around, I'm like, I got a lot of shit done. I mean, that information was great, but kind of just stayed in the background. And then when I was 35, I had my first daughter and, um, you know, 35. So my tendencies for perfectionism and order and control and a need for like my way or the fucking highway attitude um, were very well established. And um, as kids do, they don't care about what I want and what order I want things in. And um, it really challenged me to really break out of the little box container, comfortable space that I'd sort of developed for myself. What I realized then is that I had literally been keeping the real me, the feeling me, the one who needed to work through everything. I'd been keeping that part of me really contained in in my visual in a little cinder block room with no windows. And after after she was born, it took about a year uh, to acknowledge that I wasn't well. And, you know, I was the doer. I was the, everybody goes to for the answers person. So whenever anybody said, you know, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm great. The laundry's done. The kid's clean. Everybody's good. And yet every day was just a, a, an emotional disaster. Um, I unfortunately don't hold a lot of memories of the joy parts of her first year, even though I know they existed. I can see videos. Um, my memories are really trapped in anxiety and stress. Like I said, about a year after uh, I kind of busted wide open and and out came this understanding of my need for control and where that start where that stemmed from and started to do that inner work to really get some more clarity. And of course, that journey is is long. Um, I was doing my master's at the time, and fortunately, the direction I was taking with that allowed for some inner work. And you know, then I had a second child, and that sort of brought up some more inner work. But really, the defining moment, I think, was, that I couldn't control her, nor do I want to. But at the time, I really did um, because I was just so used to controlling everything else in my life, how people were around me, what happened, where things were. I even made my husband um, plant the garden in the backyard 
everything was equidistant from each other. And God forbid he plant two flowers that were different colors and things were always having to be very, very orderly. And um, because I really didn't feel like I had control over my own sense of self. I'd really externalized that for most of my life. And, you know, you just get into this habit of where you see your worth and your value and, and what gets rewarded you then lean on. And in the early days, um, you know, I'm 44 now, when I was young, you know, compartmentalizing your feelings was an asset and it was openly, I was openly told that. So this sort of breakdown slash breakthrough, I'll call it, um, was the first of a series of moments of burnout and exhaustion and breaking open. And the first, the first one was a doozy. All the rest of them, I had four uh, over a series of about four years. They all had their value. And, and now I feel way better. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally relate to a lot of what you're saying about the procrastination, about the perfectionism, and also about kids busting that open. Because, <laughs> and that is actually, they are doing us a favor. We don't yeah. realize it initially. We just yeah. think, oh my God, they're fucking everything up my perfect order. Right. And, you know, all this stuff. But um, what a value it is that they have allowed us to, like you said, do that work mm-hmm. on ourselves that can make us better human beings. Yeah. It's funny, my eldest, and you know, a lot of people say, you know, this child is like this parent and this child is like this parent. Um, she is very much, she sees the world very, in a very similar way to her father and her father, I mean, we love each other and everything's great there, but I look at her and I'm thinking you are here to challenge me to become a better person. Yes. Um, a lot of my, what the fuck? Like, I don't understand (laughs) how you see the world. Like, how is that a thing? And now when I get those feelings, I'm like, oh, okay. I did my turn to grow. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yes. I totally (laughs) get that. I absolutely feel like, I mean, just as a, you know, in my own motherhood journey, like my girls, I have three daughters as you know, they were put in my life. Thank goodness. Right. To give me, and I guess to teach me the things that I never knew growing up, Mm -hmm. the things that I never learned and that were not present in my life Mm -hmm. and having these three female children, especially (laughs) female children, allowed me to learn about and feel empowered Mm -hmm. and, you know, things that I, like I said, I never knew before. When you look back, it's like, yes, look at all those great things that happened. At the time, I thought they were really kind of fucked. Um, and it, this, that happened to me, you know, I went through seeking out therapy for anxiety. Um, I ended up in, you know, in my community at the time, there wasn't a lot of support for postpartum depression or anxiety. I wasn't diagnosed with anything, but I was clearly experiencing some raw feelings. And I worked for the school board and, uh, in a interesting conversation, I basically told my vice principal to go fuck himself. Um, and he turned to me and went, I don't think this is about me think you maybe need some time to sort yourself out. And I made a call and I ended up talking to somebody in the umbrellas program in our community, which is a support service therapy program for women who are with child or just postpartum who have substance use issues. And it really does look at the holistic view of the person. And um, I ended up on the phone with one of these women and I'd made these phone calls for the, the students that I worked for many times. And it wasn't till she said, you know, do you use alcohol or anything like that to get through the day? I'm like, 
oh yeah, you're talking to the right person because I used control and everything inside of that for so long as a way to numb out what I didn't want to feel. Unfortunately, it also numbed out joy. And then when I didn't feel like I had control, I was sought out things in my life that allowed me to escape what I thought was the problem before I could really do that inner work to work through that there may have been problems, but I now had the responsibility to do something with that. So alcohol, um, prescription medication. So I know that we were going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, my mom, we'll talk about that in a minute, but my mom had uh, suffered some uh, car accident and brain injuries. And in my world, like Tylenol with codeine was what you took for a headache. And so I grew up thinking that's what you did. And as a result, I'm like, if I'm not feeling good, I would do that, Um, which then you know, manifested in all kinds of interesting ways in my life. So I'm very aware now of where, when I feel out of control and what I'm actually in control of, what I can turn to and say, what can I get my hands on that will make a difference? And when I feel like something, people, environment, situations are beyond me, um, I look for ways to now build myself up within that, not escape from it. So, you know, whatever I choose recreationally no longer becomes a need to escape, but it's just a, a just a general part of life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I struggled a long time with the, am I an alcoholic because I do these things? I don't know. I don't know where I fit in. I don't. And I just looked, looking back and going, I am just a habit number mm. that just, you know, um, not. I didn't have, I didn't feel like I had the tools to manage pain, grief. I didn't feel like I had the time, you know, as a young person, my, to, you know, a young person born to very young parents who were always just doing the best they could. They divorced when I was 17 and I've always felt like it was my job to hold everything together. Like since a young, young age. And as a result, I'm like, I don't have time for me. I got to make sure that my mom doesn't lay on the floor for another week. I got to make sure that this doesn't happen, that my brother's okay. That, and then that just became world order. You know, John's very good at making everything okay, at making sure everybody's taken care of, you know. Silly little story. When I was in kindergarten, I didn't come home right away. It was half day kindergarten. And my mom put out like an alert and turns out that I was just staying after school to make sure everybody else had all of their mitts and their hats and their boots. And then everything was put away and everything was orderly, you know, and I'm five. Wow. Yeah. Wait, so at that young age of five, like, where do you think, like, where did that need for control and the, the anxiety around that, like, where did that come from? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, obviously there's, we're influenced by the the grownups in our lives. And, and, um, and again, no fault of my parents who loved me very much, you know, there, that was always present. Um, but my mom, you know, young mom, she had me when she was just 20 and at the time, you know, not really well educated that changed as we got older, but she was a babysitter. And at the time, you know, what she told me was 15 kids could have been seven kids, but I was the oldest and I was five. So there were infants, two, three, four-year-olds. And then, you know, I became like mommy's little helper, which, you know, I big badge of honor there in to, to be that person. And then I, that just extended. And then as situations happen in our lives, as they do, many of which, you know, grownups are managing at their own level and children only get what 
and, and can only understand the snippets. You know, we don't have the capacity for contextualization at that early age until like seven, eight years old. Can we really start pulling together abstract thought and go, oh, this happens because of this? You know, we're just seeing and then feeling and believing. So I think, you know, my, my parents have their own journey and it wasn't always sunshine and rainbows. You know, I, when my brother was born, he's a year younger than me, my parents weren't together. And I think that they're, you know, they go through their paces. And I'm wondering if I've always sort of felt like they were not a hundred percent and that I could fill gaps, right? So I could help this. Oh, that made everybody happy. Oh, I could help with this. And that made everybody happy. It even translated as I got a little bit older, I remember going to my friends' houses and like cleaning their kitchen because I'm like, well, that would make, that makes people happy when things get taken care of and they don't have to deal with it, um, which just then became a part of who I was. Yeah. So you responded to the reactions that you were- mm-hmm. A positive reinforcement. From, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and you know, from a psychological standpoint, yay, positive reinforcement as opposed to negative. Yeah. Like, yeah. so I, I, I kind of always felt like I took the road of uh, achieve and you will receive. And that, you know, I remember being in college and learning about like learned helplessness. And I'm like, yeah, no, I did the opposite. Like when I learned that um, you know, bad things could happen. I'm like, well, what can I do to be, to be seen as better? You know, so I, I took the road of high academics. I was the, I was a pretty smart kid. Um, and that was always my thing. Like, well, I have that and I'll just put that out front. So I, and then, I mean, my goodness, we could talk for days about how that then manifested in an interesting way, because I was also brought up in a time where girls aren't meant to be smart and they're meant to use their boobs which I had. And so I really felt um, constantly confused as to where my power was and how I would then show up in the world. So with family, it was like, take care of everybody, make sure everybody's good. Um, At school, just go, 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 get all the high marks. And everything was externalized. Like I am loved because I show up and do things for you, or I show up and I get the good marks, or I do these things that you can see. Not an inherent, I'm loved because... I exist, mm-hmm. which I might cry because that took me f- like forever yeah. to truly, <clears throat> to truly understand and, and then actually feel. Yeah. So you shut down your feelings as a kid mm-hmm. and you didn't have many childhood memories as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And I know you said for a long time, you didn't even know you weren't happy. Yeah. You know, in when we talked before recording, you talked about an everyday trauma and you yeah. use that word everyday trauma mm-hmm. that you experienced as a teenager. And I would love to hear more about that and how that uh, impacted you. Absolutely. Reflecting back on my teenage years, I was, I thought a lot about, you know, what happened. And I remember talking to friends, like I was in my thirties and one of my friends like, oh my God, your life was so shitty. How did you make it? And I'm like, well, um, my, my life was fine. Like I, I've got a great life. My parents are nice people and I have this degree and this job and look at me, I'm, I'm fine. And then I look back and went, Oh, that's what she was talking about. I didn't even see it. So when I was 17, um, my parents got divorced, commonplace, you know, um, going back a few years, but still pretty commonplace. 
the experience of it as the child who had forever been the fixer and the saver of my family and just sort of the emotional calibration between the personalities in my life. And, and really, um, you know, there, it's not that my parents turned to me to do anything specific, but I really felt like my role was to smooth things over. And here we were, my mother, um, finding my dad at his girlfriend's house and then throwing everything he owns on the front lawn. And then at the time, my boyfriend having to drive my dad back to his car in and of itself, crazy. And my best friend at the time, who is still my friend, told me that I cried for five hours with her. I have no recollection of that. Um, what I do remember is a week later, the uh, someone from a bank coming to tell us that we no longer owned our home and that we had to leave in five days or two weeks or whatever it was. And my mother was um, incapacitated. She was a puddle on the floor. And knowing what I know now about her experience of life, um, you know, she was doing the best she could even in that moment. Uh, she suffers from um, uh, some mental health issues and PTSD and uh, unbeknownst to me as a 17 year old. But there I was packing up our three bedroom home. And I remember packing up my toys and I threw out every toy I ever had. I was like, maybe I don't know if I was conscious of this, but I'm like, I'm a grown up now. Is Cabbage Patch Kids, garbage, everything just went into the garbage. My brother left. And I think at that, from that moment on, you know, I'd had sort of a, a habit of kind of closeting my feelings, not really being super in tune with joy and things like that nature. But this was the moment where it all went inside. And so from 17 to about 35, I didn't, I wasn't there. And so the person that showed up every day was a very good girl very good at, I could to do anything and I could to do anything for you. Um, I remember my boss at the time when I was about 35, 36 saying, you're like scurry from who moved my cheese. If you're familiar with that book and you're like, I just have to give you anything and you just do it. And, and then it gets done. I, I lived my, my career that way, just getting shit done for people. Um, most of it meant nothing to me. It was more just getting it done. As soon as I got it done, I'm a good person. And, you know, here's the project. Here's the layout. Here's all the things. And like, yep, another star for Dion. She's good. She can get everything done. That experience of what I labeled as everyday trauma, and it's everyday because it happens all the time. It happens in such a way that it, I never felt like it was something worth talking about. Never felt like it was something worth dealing with. It was just, meh, it's just my life. It's just what happened. And when I would share it with other people, very emotionless, I'm like, yeah, whatever, like no biggie. The knowledge I have now about what I had to do in order to survive that moment, um, very reminiscent of what I understand about trauma. And the, the steps that I took sort of post-awareness, if you will, were to really try to adopt a practice of, of everyday courage. I had developed a lot of patterns of behavior, some of which worked really well for me, some of which weren't really serving me anymore, specifically the perfectionism and the people pleasing. Those are both traits that allowed me to go to university. They allowed me to continue to show up to my life and, and they served me based on what I could handle. And when I began to practice this idea of everyday courage, of just being willing to be curious about my own thoughts, about my own feelings, um, the world really opened up for me. You know, I had my first daughter when I was 35, my second when I was 37. And then promptly right after that, I went through another massive 
shift. And I think that, um, you know, everything happens as soon as it can. A little something I like to say to myself often. And, and my world really started to open up from there. Tell me, now that you've done that work mm-hmm. to start to acknowledge who you are and your feelings, like, have you allowed yourself to feel like mm-hmm. to reflect on your childhood and all those experiences as a teen and, and even into adulthood, mm-hmm. have you allowed yourself to really look at that stuff and feel it? Mm-hmm. And, and what was that like for you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I did, when I did my master's, I, I learned about a methodology called narrative inquiry, which at the time <laughs> my, I, I have a, background in like hard sciences. So at the time I was like, that sounds woo woo to me. Um, but what it really offered me was this opportunity for reflection and reframing. I'd never really understood that concept or, or it had never occurred to me before. And so when I started to do this work of looking back, I used some of that knowledge I had about how to relive and retell our stories so that we land where we want to now. So the, the skill of being able to understand where we are now, to look back at what happened, to look internally at what was going on externally at what was influencing us and then decide how I want to feel as a result, because that is the power. I get to decide how my memories impact me. And then my, my knowledge and awareness of science and, um, neurology and neuroscience, it allowed me to go, oh, okay. So my brain does this when I choose to re- live and then retell through the lens of what it is that I want. And it allowed me to go there to open up that door and, and reinvest in myself there. And I, I feel now that I can look back and not go down in it. Um, moments that the time were very rage inducing. And a lot of my childhood, I, I really, the, the feelings I get around those memories are very rage based and again, control and all of those things. Um, but now I can look and go, okay, so doing the best that I could at six, 12, 17 and beyond and knowing what I know now, about where I've come and, and, and where I've landed, I can look at the gifts as they show up. And, um, the, the, the true gift is that I can now feel now, you know, um, crying, have no memories of crying, um, no memories of, of really expressing myself. And then now, I mean, my kids joke that mommy's always crying, you know, I, and, (laughs) and I'm like, yes, you know, what's so great about how quickly I can tap into either sadness or anger or whatever is I can just as quickly tap into joy. Because when I chose to numb everything that was holding me, uh, making me feel uncomfortable, I also then didn't get to experience real happiness. I made assumptions about, well, you look happy because I'm doing this. So, so I must be happy now. And you are speaking about me in a good way and you seem pleased. I must be happy now. And, um, so yeah, feeling it and choosing how I wanted to re-experience those memories was really, really powerful for me. I ended up writing my master's thesis specifically on the stories of my life and investing. It felt like I was paying them for me to like, it was like therapy, right? Me writing this, this massive paper, being able to go inside all of those moments that have literally been spinning and dictating my narrative and then it allowed me to rewrite my story, which is really 
what I want to be helping other women to do every day. I absolutely love that because there is this narrative, this story that we believe, Mm -hmm. you know, about our lives. And then when we have the knowledge, right. And the emotional capacity and all that to look back. Mm -hmm. And when we have those instances of like, oh my God, it really, it wasn't actually that it was this other thing or like, oh, I, I finally understand that now. Mm -hmm. Like it's so fricking powerful. And it's like, it like gives me chills to just think about those times in my own life where I've looked back and gone, oh, what the heck (laughs) about my own childhood. So, I mean, I know you had a huge one of these moments. Mm -hmm. Please tell us about when you heard Forrest Willett speak Mm -hmm. and how that changed things for you in a big way. Absolutely. So a little background, my mom and I, um, I love my mom very much. She is a brilliant woman and she has her own very unique journey. So she suffered um, two catastrophic brain injuries due to car accidents, one when I was two and one when I was about 24. And the one, when it happened when she, when I was two, you know, we're going back 42 years now, the medical world did not quite understand the impact of brain injuries, the long, long, long term impact. And uh, she went from being dead to being coma to being, you can go home now. And nobody ever made mention that this had happened to her. And as a result, cognitive impairment, emotional impairment, uh, you know, for her, her own coping strategies, whatever those were for her, what I observed growing up was this crazy woman who drank a lot and took a lot of drugs. Drugs as in like prescription meds, a lot of, like I mentioned before, the Tylenol with codeine, like she would be like, I have head pain. I must, I must get rid of this. And her uh, experience and how she was able to move through the world, I'm still in awe of what she was able to accomplish. And um, as a young person, as a fixer saver, I got really exhausted by having to parent her a little bit later in life. It became really, she started to turn, um, go downward when we no longer needed her. And then all of a sudden now she needs me to be the parent and she was it was almost like she was incapacitated. That was my experience of it. And it was too much for me to handle to have to um, take care of her. So fast forward a little bit, you know, now I'm in my thirties. I had stopped talking to her for five years. My kids were born. I reintroduced her into my life, but my feelings for her hadn't changed. They actually had started to deepen into rage. And when I saw her, I'd be like, oh, and if she opened her mouth and, you know, her, again, zero concept of her perspective and how she saw the world. I didn't understand that for her, two plus two would never be four. Just like never. Her brain just didn't function. She was, you know, this is before the language of neurotypical, neuroatypical and and what the that meaning is, but it just, she didn't make sense to me. She wasn't the mom I had expected her to be. And I was angry, so angry. And um, I worked for the school board in adult education, and we had a speaker come in, Forrest Willett. And he is, um, if you're familiar with him, he's a local to my community, and he's also a globally renowned um, motivational speaker. So he chose to come to my tiny little school and and to share some of his wisdom about the success principles. He works with Jack Canfield and 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 his story. So he is. Uh, 
car accident, brain injury, fully incapacitated survivor. He also suffered from uh, anxiety and depression and then uh, substance abuse as a result of everything that transpired for him. So he gave this talk and I was like, whoa, wow, this man is, and he's just soft-spoken and brilliant. And I really enjoyed his energy at the time before I even knew energy. Um, And I remember saying to him afterwards, I'm like, oh man, I want to do what you do. And he's like, what, what, what part of that? I'm like, I want to, I want to share my story. I want to speak. He's like, then, then you should go do that. <laughs> and at the time I'm like, well, who would fucking want to listen to me? I've never had a brain injury. I've done, I've not survived cancer. There's nothing major has ever happened in my life. Who would, who would care about my story? And then come back to that idea of everyday trauma and the experience of the power of storytelling that then started to trickle into my life. So I listened to him talk and it, everything was sort of happening at the same time. I was about three months into returning from my second maternity leave. My postpartum anxiety was sort of maintained, but not great. And I had scheduled in a full hysterectomy because of a fibroid issue. Anyway, kind of unrelated. But the reality is I was going to be home for seven weeks Right after hearing him, I bought his book. I'm like, you're a great guy. I'm going to buy your book. And it's called Baseballs Don't Bounce. Didn't know anything about his book. I thought it was about what he had talked about. Turns out it's like a how-to book for brain injury survivors to survive their brain injury. And it really was detailed experiences of what it was like to see the world through the lens of a brain injury. And like using the stove or interacting with other people or the panic and the depression and the, the drugs and the alcohol and all of those pieces. And he was writing this sort of narrative as a bit of a, hey, if you have these issues, then, you know, there's, there's hope. And I, there I was lying down because I just had surgery and reading this book and I just start bawling my eyes out. My mom had actually come to help because I had uh, a toddler and an infant. And, um, I just turned to her. I'm like, oh my God, I fucking get it. Like, I just, like, I get it. It was instantaneous. The overwhelming sense of, of relief and release that occurred. Cause I was like, this man wrote your book. This is everything that we have ever gone through from the leaving something on the stove and almost starting your burning your house down to how you, you speak inappropriately in stressful situations and, you know, you name it. I'm like, oh my God, how is it that this is not something that I was privy to before? How is it that I've lived for so long with the, and had no knowledge of what you were going through and you were never able to explain it to me because you have a fucking brain injury. Yeah. And that instant, I fell back in love with my mother. Like we all of a sudden were like, and my sense of ownership and responsibility for her to be okay went away. Like I'm not responsible for this grown up because she has to walk her own path. I can support the shit out of her. I can make sure she gets all the people and sees the right professionals. And But now I know that, you know, when she forgets her co- her own cousin's name, I can be a a lot more compassionate. I I really was so stuck in the pain and so much anger towards her. I had zero compassion for her and she knew it. And so she was afraid of me because I would just lash out and be like, fuck mom, seriously. And that changed. And then she stopped looking to me to fix her and I stopped trying to fix her. 
and our relationship just sort of blossomed. And does she still struggle? Sure. And, and I get to be here with her. I'm not here to take care of her. And that, that just, that's everything to me. And my kids, I mean, they don't know any different and they just know that their nanny is the coolest, best, most loving, wonderful, um, has always been great with kids. Uh, she was retired EA and that just was able to blossom and flourish even more because I stopped being a problem. My, my perspective of her shifted and, and really got out of the way. Yeah. So I love that you had that awakening, that compassion for her, because I know you had said that before you sort of were afraid to become oh, yeah. her. Oh yeah. And then all of a sudden when you had that incredible understanding of her experiences with her brain injuries and, mm-hmm. and all of that, that you were unafraid. Yeah. I mean, my growing up, uh, my mom was diagnosed with everything. Um, you know, she had depression, she had anxiety, she was bipolar, she was manic. I mean, again, no talk about the brain injuries, but you know, these mental health labels that were applied and then medications that would then follow. And I was so afraid of having a mental health problem. I mean, unbeknownst to me, I was suffering from anxiety the whole time, but didn't know that, you know, used to have blackout as a child in fits of rage and just think that was normal. This is what everybody does, right? Totally. Not really. Um, and I, you know, I knew that some of the things she was diagnosed with could have been diagnosed, uh, in me, you know, my twenties, some of the mental health things tend to pop up at that time. So, I distanced myself from her again, like I said, for five years, right around my mid twenties, because I'm like, I can't be around you because then I can't be like you. I don't want to have anything to like, I can't be that. I need to stay in control. I can never be the one who is crazy. And my husband who has known me for a long time would be like, yeah, you were always sort of there. <laughs> you always had the, your own way of the world. But like, like you said, that moment, it really gave me uh, permission to release myself from her story and, and create, allow us to create a new one together. I love that. I'm so happy to hear that now you have a new relationship with her and that your kids do. That's, oh yeah, that's incredible. You at some point started to believe that you were allowed to be happy. <laughs> so tell me what brings you joy? Absolutely. So, you know, as I said, I was home for that surgery and I'd read Forrest's book. He also gave me Jack Canfield's The Success Principles at the same time. And there I was laid up for seven weeks and I'd had this moment with my mom. And I'm like, if that can shift, maybe others, like, I don't think I was consciously making all these decisions, but I knew that I'm like, I can do other things. I decided to just go inward and I'm going to read books. I mean, I've always read books, but now I'm going to read them like through this lens of, I can do something about this. I could figure out some joy here. Like this can happen. And, um, I remember being overwhelmed by Facebook at the time that that really hasn't changed, but I was (laughs) overwhelmed by Facebook and it just felt so disgusting to be on it. And the comparisonitis and everything was so like, I am not enough. And, and then I, I thought, you know, the best way to do that, to get rid of my ick around social media was to go get some more social media. So I had got an Instagram account and Instagram is so pretty and it's so lovely. And I could just, I didn't friend, I didn't follow anybody who was my friend on Facebook. I just found things that I'm like, oh, that looks nice. Cause it was all about, that looks nice and I can feel it. And that's great. 
and I started to learn about hand lettering. Now, I was feeling really drawn to being creative. And it's funny, I started binge listening to a podcast when I was um, on leave that was designed for creative entrepreneurs, which I thought was funny as I didn't consider myself creative, nor was I an entrepreneur, but I binge listened to this podcast and I started to get this idea in my head that like I could be happy and I could do things just for me. And so I started doing art in November of 2015. I openly stood up and said, I'm an artist. My husband who is an artist was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) And um, I set up a little station in my kitchen with pens and markers and all things that looked like my kids stuff, although they weren't allowed to play with it. And I just started creating for the sake of creating, started writing for the sake of writing and just leaving it be. I actually wrote um, a blog series that never went anywhere. And it was journal entries from the age of six to the age of 40, where I wrote those experiences that I was having a hard time letting go of. I wrote them from the point of view of me then. And then I wrote back to myself from me now. Oh, wow. I love that. Yeah. And I just, that whole, like, I see you, you're okay. This, like what you're going through now is, was, will be that kind of thing. And just allowed myself to feel through art. And then I, you know, Instagram is full of like challenges and things you can do. So I started putting stuff on Instagram and And then away it went. And so what brings me joy now is anything where I feel like I can tap into myself, where I can feel connected to whatever emotions I'm having and and be able to sort of process them. I really do believe that um, we are all born creative. I mean, that's actually true. And I also believe it. And by tapping into my creative center, it gave me permission to advocate for my own happiness. So I didn't know boundaries were a thing. And all of a sudden there, I'd created this boundary around my art. Uh, Yeah, sorry, kid, those are my Crayola markers. You can't touch them, (laughs) right? And I started to make things that were mine. And that was really new. Time that was mine, space that was mine, energy that was mine. Oh my God. And nobody got angry at me. If anything, the people who loved me the most were like, fucking finally. (laughs) (laughs) Now there's, there's always a little pushback when you set a boundary, depending on who it's with. And, you know, there were a few instances where somebody else's needs now were no longer getting met in the manner in which they liked. And they're like, eh, well, shit. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, maybe there are people that fell away, but I didn't really notice because the people who are still part of my world just wanted me to be happy. I remember my first training that was going to cost thousands of dollars. My husband's like, yeah, you know what? Like that may cost a lot of money, but your unhappiness costs us so much more. Oh, right. He's a good person. What a good guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so yeah, now I really focus on like authentic happiness is sort of a positive psychology term, but this idea that you can be happy even when things are shitty. It's this idea of belief and trust and, and faith, if you will, that, you know, you, you as a person have the capacity to do hard things. Thank you, Glennon. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And, and those hard things don't become you, that you can flourish through them and, and still feel confident that, you know, you are awesome. So, you know, the hot mess to awesomeness journey for me is that recognizing that even when you feel like you're a hot mess, you can still declare and I'm fucking awesome. Yeah. Like, and it, it can still be part of that everyday conversation. I love that. And to know that those shitty moments are temporary. Yeah. And I always tell my girls that because if they have, 
you know, a hard day or, you know, trouble with a friend or a bad mark on a test or something. It's like, yeah, it sucks. Feel it. Mm -hmm. But know that this isn't forever and that you are awesome, right? You are friggin' awesome. And just, it's okay. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful thing. So for those of us who, you know, anxiety is an issue or any type of mental health stress that really draws you into this idea of like this belief that this is your forever now. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees or whatever you want to call it. That's very much how I felt. Remember that first year postpartum with my first daughter, I just couldn't get beyond like, this was going to be it. This is my life just pain and screaming and her and I, and, um, and everything that goes along with it. I did no concept of where, where my power actually lied. I had no concept of perspective, how to reframe, how to look beyond my now. So I wouldn't call it mindfulness. It was definitely this sort of pit of darkness, which, you know, interesting with everything that's transpired in the world through 2020, a lot of people are, are that light is being sh- sort of shined on this universal experience of how we manage uncertainty. So I got into this really defining habit of uncertain meant danger and bad and um, no good could come of not being able to control your circumstance, mm-hmm. you know, and then here we are facing infinite uncertainty. And now we have, we had to make some decisions. Like, do we look at it as the death of us or as potential for growth and expansion. And I believe that the most resilient and the people who choose that sort of resilient mindset get to look at the uncertain world full of potential. And the good thing is it's totally learnable, if that's yeah. a word. <laughs> yeah. I love that perspective and that it's it's been such a process this year to reflect on our lives and really like for me personally, like focus on that positive stuff and Mm -hmm. the potential, like you said, that potential for growth and, you know, maybe reimagining ourselves. And I I think that is a beautiful opportunity if we choose to embrace it. Right. And beyond the idea of like, you know, rose colored glasses or goodness, like toxic positivity, it's really just about perspective shift to be able to look at the world differently than we ever have before does require that we step outside of our model of the world and, and kind of go, oh, that's fascinating. I've never looked at it that way. doesn't mean that the pain or the struggle or the injustices of life disappear. It just means that you can be better equipped to manage them with this idea that you're aiming towards things working out in mm. your favor of being aligned with how you want to show up in the world, like those kind of positive movements. You couldn't have teed that one up any better. Speaking of <laughs> movements, <laughs> can you tell me about the 100 Women on Fire movement? Absolutely. As part of my journey, I left my very good on paper school board job with the pension and all the things uh, in September of 2018. And um, what I reflect on and what I know now, it was just a difference of values and the way that values show up within us. So I no longer felt like my values were being honored in that organization, which is just functioning just fine without me. And I chose to become a coach full time. I had no idea what that meant. And I really didn't know what I was doing, although I was really tapped into some great resources and some great people. I felt like I felt very alone. And yet what I knew was there's no way that I could be. There's no way that I could be the only one that's kind of trying to make this work. And 
so I spent a couple months really going like, what is it that I want to do and how do I want to do it? And who do I want with me? Because looking at my immediate environment and get, again, going back to the people who in my world just wanted me to be happy. And when I showed up to myself, everybody showed up with me and it just felt like not just support, but like doors opening and things happening. And I thought, you know, I want all the women in my world to feel that, to feel like they're connected to something that's bigger than them, that their story, although unique is universal, like that, again, going back to my understanding of, of narrative inquiry and the processes we take to define ourselves, really wanted there to be a community of women, powerful, beautiful, strong, brilliant at all stages of self-awareness women to be able to come together and be like, yeah, we are not alone and I've got you and you've got me and here we go. And so in January of 2019, I'm like, you know, I think I'd like to start sharing this message with the world. Maybe I want to get on a stage. Maybe I need to make my own stage. Maybe I need to find some people to join me because I have lots of great people in my life who are aligned with this kind of vision. And then in April of that year, we launched the 100 Women on Fire event, which as a sort of pinnacle piece of the movement was just, in my mind, groundbreaking because it brought in the power of community. It felt like a conversation in my living room with 100 people. Um, it was really something to behold. And then to hold on to that energy and continue to propel this community forward, I kept doing that. And then the next year, April 2020, no face-to-face event. Um, <laughs> That's a bummer. <laughs> right? Uh, but we did move it to online. And it was really, really, again, in my mind, sort of groundbreaking and successful. Just really powerful, great opportunity to connect. And um, COVID, whatever, it, it forced me to look at things differently. You know, look at this face-to-face event differently. Look at my experience of the world differently. And I thought, you know, how do I continue to support this community and be present and learn and gain and grow together? So I put together a space, an online space, like a membership site called the Awesomeness Academy. And it is truly a place where all the women on fire who are, again, are at any stage from the, oh, I'm allowed to be happy to, oh my God, I'm rocking my life and everything's great and everybody in between to come and join and and be part of the conversation. The fixer saver in me has evolved into the woman of service. And so I 100% put myself first and my joy first. And as a result, everybody around me gets to benefit. That's what the community is founded on. And that's what I want everyone to feel like. It's not you're not there to give yourself away. You're there to be yourself fully and everybody gets to benefit. Oh my gosh. I love (laughs) everything you just said. I absolutely love that you bring these women together. I love that you give them the space to be themselves and to share what they have to offer. I absolutely love it, love it, love it. So what is next for you? What excites you about the future? That's, that's not too big a question. is it? <laughs> I am, you know, 2020 before the craziness of 2020 hit, my word for the year was alignment. And, um, and now, you know, I'm really just focusing on service and, and showing up for my community. So for me, 2021 is really about um, being fully present and fully engaged with my one-on-one clients and then diving in and being really, really present for everybody in my, uh, the Awesomeness Academy community beyond, yes, it's a, you know, online courses and there's online information and y- there is great content. I'm not gonna lie to you. I am still that smart kid and I brought in lots of cool stuff, 
But more importantly, it's about feeling that you have a place to go. And so that's where my energy is. I'm, I'm fully turning it to being there and being present and, and allowing women to be themselves. Like you said, it's, it's kind of the most reciprocal, amazing thing I think that could happen in my life. It's I'm giving and receiving constantly. And, um, I am looking forward to the next incarnation of the 100 women on fire event have yet to land on that because of course we don't know where the world will be in 12 months from now. Um, it may be a hybrid type thing, regardless of like what specifically we do it at its core will be connection and community. Cause that's really sort of the defining piece for the entire movement itself. Absolutely love it. So are you ready for the final five? Yes, I am. <laughs> so these are the same five questions I ask of every guest. And the first one is, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? I've been thinking a lot about this because I was familiar with your questions. And, you know, my kids, we were talking about it the other day and, you know, invisibility and, and uh, super strong and fly. And I'm like, yeah, those are all good. But again, limiting. And so I decided that as my superpower, I would like the ability to imbue confidence in anybody so that they could completely trust themselves. Yes. Because I truly believe that if we all had that capacity, we would abolish the pain and the shame and the social norms that are keeping us constrained. Oh, hell to the yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I think about that all the time with my girls is, you know, just, I always tell them, just be yourselves, be you because you're the only one, right? And just have the confidence to put your truest self out there. And then the people who are drawn to that are your people. Absolutely. When you were a kid, what did you think it'd be when you grew up? I was told that I would make a great judge. Again, going back to those early days, I would be like, okay, what's going on here? I need to figure (laughs) all this out. Y'all need to be heard and seen and valued. And then, okay, now we can put this issue to rest. And thinking back, I'm like, yeah. That was nice, but it was never really my thing. I I leaned on math and science, again, more concrete, much more easier to control than like English and history and subjective thoughts where I had to have an opinion. Wasn't used to that. So I went to school for molecular biology and genetics, and I thought I was going to be this kind of scientist that was going to save the world. Nice. And here you are. And here I am. Miss Miss Awesomeness herself. I love it. If it were your last day on earth, what would your final meal be? Oh my God, cheese and meat and roasted garlic. <laughs> that stuff does not agree with me on day two. So if this was only, this all I had, I would just like breathe it in. I would eat all the stinkiest cheese I could find and <laughs> roast my own like bulbs and just be like, these are mine. You can't have them. Oh yeah. Yes. That's what I would have. <laughs> yes. It makes me think of, I went to this restaurant in Chicago years ago And they, it was the first time I had seen it. I was like in my early twenties and they brought out this bread basket and in it was a bulb of roasted garlic. And I was like, what is this? Be still my heart. I've never seen it before. (laughs) And they said, and it was this beautiful caramelized brown. Mm. And they said, oh yes, you just, you know, you squirt it out and rub it on the bread. And I was like shut up. (laughs) And it was, and so we, you know, now I I do that at home, but it was the first time I'd ever seen such a thing. And I was like, what is this wizardry? (laughs) 
It was amazing. Anyway. Yes. I can, I can so appreciate. I'm, so obviously oh. I'm totally on board with you with the roasted garlic. Okay. Um, who is a woman in history or present day you admire? That list is long, especially with everything that has just transpired recently. It is long. And so for me, I look back and I most admire all of the women in STEM specifically who were forced to decide between what brought them joy and what they were good at and having a family and seeing and being valued as a woman. Um, So many women just, you know, you can live in this little hovel and then you can cure this disease, but we will not recognize you nor pay you. And just that that constant struggle that they had to face. And uh, I really, truly, I wanted to mention, there's a book called 52 Headstrong, is uh, women who change the world of science and the world as a whole. And really just keeping those stories alive, um, I think that's really important. But yeah, 100%, I look back to all of those women who really paved the way for those of us in the science and and health and helping worlds and, and made it possible for us to be here to to not have to decide to be one or the other, that we can be everything we want to be and in our own way, not more than ourselves, but just fully who we are. Yes. Yes. Preach. <laughs> uh, who, what is your favorite quote? Oh my goodness. I have so many. Me I'm kind too. of a wordophile. <laughs> so the one quote that I say to myself every day, and I have two, is everything is always working out for me. So very law of attraction, but very powerful. Great reframe really helps my habit of perspective shifting. Um, but one quote that has really, um, it came early in my growth and awareness and has really uh, found its way to percolate through is that no significant learning occurs without a significant relationship of mutual respect. And that's by James Comer. And I, I just, it felt so true to me. And it really, um, you know, my values of, of connection and honoring humanity and really being present with others requires that in order for us to have a conversation and not because I want you to believe what I believe, but in order for us to all, both grow, we need to see each other as equals. There needs to be respect there. And I grew up and worked in a system that was very hierarchical, like there was very distinct, I am above you, you are below me. And as a result, then there were people below me. And in order to have those conversations, which ultimately, if you're engaging in a conversation, the desire is there's going to be some learning there some way and that mutual respect needs to exist. I love that. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I really love your powerful message Mm -hmm. and I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much, Kim. It was an honor to be here. 